The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. If we say friendshoring and we say openness, but we don't put as much muscle behind ensuring that that happens as we do making sure that our companies get our subsidies, then we'll have lost a big opportunity and we may, we may have undermined the very openness that is our strength. I am Eugenia Dostri, Lawfare's Fellow in Technology Policy and Law, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 23rd, 2023. The open nature of the internet has allowed malicious actors to abuse technology. Information operations, offensive cyber, and IP theft are just some examples of this misuse. The Biden administration has pursued an industrial policy that hopes to counter the weaponization of globalized systems. This approach includes technology subsidies, expert controls, and rethinking supply chains. However, this approach could undermine efforts to advance global rules and values. To discuss how the United States can push back while bolstering democracy and human rights, I sat down with former Ambassador Karen Kornblum, Managing Director of the Digital Innovation and Democracy Initiative and Senior Fellow with the German Marshall Fund. Ambassador Kornblum is the lead author of a new GMF report, The New American Foreign Policy of Technology. We discussed why there is a need to rethink American foreign policy, how to center democratic values, and the crucial role of a multi-stakeholder approach. It's the Lawfare Podcast for March 23rd, The New American Foreign Policy of Technology. Karen, why don't we start with an overview of your recent report? And I would really like to hear about the context in which you have been thinking about the need for a new foreign policy of technology. So we just put out a report that tries to address what would it take to be successful in this new effort that the administration and Congress have embarked on to really shift pivot the um, ocean liner of national economic policy. So we had been in this period of real laissez-faire globalization, and we seem to be shifting to one of industrial policy and uh, putting tech at the heart of our national security as well. And uh, I can talk more about that later, but we wanted to say, well, what would it take to make that successful? And how do, what are the missing pieces 
that are still required after two busy years of huge change? Um, what else needs to be done? And what we what we thought primarily needs to be done is really filling in the foreign policy framework, the architecture of how we deal with the international economic system and how tech is treated seriously and as an ongoing issue. So the Biden administration has embarked on all these um, regional alliances like the EU-US Trade and Tech Council, but that's not really sufficient to deal with issues like semiconductor uh, supply chains, where we have to work with other democracies to ensure that we have access to this critical input of the digital age. So what is missing? What do we need to do to really make sure that we're not competing against other democracies in a way that's going to be lose-lose, but we're cooperating in a way that's really win-win. That was our primary recommendation, is that we address that issue. And then secondly, how do we do foreign policy among individual democracies? How do we share how do we share inputs on what's working and what's not working in terms of really encouraging innovation and manufacturing and a robust uh, industrial policy. And then the third piece is how do we do that in a rights protecting context? How do we make sure that the internet, people's rights are still protected on the internet? We can't lose sight of our of our values. So those are the three sort of tent poles of the proposal. And it's in this context, I love the way you say that, it's in this context of shifting from laissez-faire globalization to shifting to a more industrial policy oriented uh, economic policy. And I should say that um, if we don't fill in these pieces, if it looks like we're going it alone, we're being nationalistic, we're being unilateral for our own purposes, rather than responding to the weaponization of the trading system that China's embarked on, rather than the national security threats that democracies face. If we're not, if we're not saying, no, 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 we're not undermining the rules-based system. Here is how we're plugging the holes. Here's how we're working with other democracies. Everyone's welcome if they embrace these values and rule of law. Then we risk undermining rather than strengthening the rules-based system and undermining democracies and their international sway. So that's a lot. We can spend some time unpacking that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to unpacking all of that. And something that I really appreciated of your report is that you structure these tensions as zero-sum choices. Uh, you talk about, you know, tensions between different approaches. I think core to this is, you know, the idea that there are going to have to be compromises on each each one of those tensions. Do you think I got that right? Yes, exactly. And I, I think one one basic starting point that we have is that in this contest between democracies and autocracies in the new digital environment, democracies have a natural advantage. Democracy is better at innovation. It's more um, free flowing. Uh, we welcome immigrants. Um, we just have a, a more natural advantage at innovation. And the way that autocracies uh, authoritarians try to gain an advantage is really by weaponizing the systems. And so we don't want to fall into a trap of trying to be too top down, of being a zero sum, as you say, in our response. We have to preserve what's important and what's rich about our democracies at the same time as, as, we, as we respond more strategically. So with that in mind, let's, let's get started with the unpacking. 
the the first tension that you address has to do with innovation, right? So let's start with the basics. What do you think the U.S. should be focusing on here? Yeah, so I mean, if you take a look at Silicon Valley Bank, let's say, or TikTok, two big issues in the news, trying to take the hidebound policy approaches and even the skill set of government officials and apply them in these new environments. Silicon Valley Bank was not only too big to fail potentially for the financial system, but it was potentially too big to fail for the startup ecosystem. And I think that was part of what went into the decision to save the depositors was we had missed that all these startup companies didn't have the same kind of revenue stream that a normal company has. They were just getting huge bagfuls of money, suitcases of money, and parking them in the bank. And so they were incredibly vulnerable and not protected by the FDIC limit on bank accounts, of insuring bank accounts up to $250,000. A bank regulator now needs to understand that. And that's true throughout our economy. You know, the Federal Trade Commission has to understand algorithms and how they work. And, you know, it's used to um, being staffed by lawyers who have some tech knowledge But not only do we need people who really understand algorithms, we probably need algorithms to audit the algorithms. So a big part of what we're saying is government needs to really beef up its capacity and its understanding um, in order to deal with the innovation economy, in order to encourage innovation. And part of that is setting guardrails, obviously. And then also that we need to change some of the procedures that may have worked well when they were originally put in place, not to subvert the purpose of them, but to make them more nimble, more agile for this world. So permitting is one that's been in the news a lot. How do we do permitting in a way that still respects environmental and labor standards, but doesn't take such a long time, can't be weaponized by those who are just trying to preserve the status quo? How do we update those permitting processes? Not sweep them away, but resource them properly, update them. Another is our budget rules. As we saw Over the last two years, a lot of these proposals had to go through this clunky system of reconciliation, which only looks at spending. It doesn't look at what you're trying to accomplish. And now we're talking about everything in terms of the budget deficit without looking at the difference between, let's say, a fossil fuel subsidy and an R&D subsidy. One, the latter is much better for the economy, for innovation. The former goes in the wrong direction. But our procedures, our budget rules, our, reg- our regulatory cost-benefit analyses, they don't take account of what's really productive for, for our economy. And so these are some of the things that we really feel need to be updated in order to encourage innovation and to and as we implement uh, the industrial policies that were just put in place. And, and what would the impact of these policies be? in relation to the foreign policy that you articulate? Well, so in a foreign policy context, the reason we put it in a foreign policy of tech report, it sounds very domestic, but one of the things that democracies do is they workshop how best to do things, especially in the economic environment, and then they share best practices with each other, and they try to harmonize it as best as possible so they're not, you know, so that trade is enabled. So I was ambassador to the OECD. That's a primary thing that the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. That's one of the things they've always done since they were created in the aftermath of World War II is help democracies 
compare how they do things like regulation and governance and so on uh, to make sure that they're learning from each other and they're being most innovative. And so in the foreign policy context, what we're saying is government needs to encourage innovation. It needs to encourage science spending. It's going to subsidize some of these critical inputs. How do we compare how we're doing this so that we're doing it in the most innovative way possible? And uh, in the Obama administration, they had a loan guarantee program. And uh, one of the companies uh, went bankrupt that was getting loans. And it became a huge scandal. And it really tarnished the reputation of this program. And it increased people's cynicism about what government could actually accomplish. It turned out that the program overall made a profit. But what people remember is this one company, Solyndra. And we, I think we want to see a system that appropriately accounts for a Solyndra. How do we evaluate going in what really will work? How do we explain it to the citizens of a democracy? And then afterwards, how do we assess what's worked and what's not? And how do we use those lessons learned to do future policies? If we're going to make this industrial policy a success, who's going to get the CHIPS money, the semiconductor money? Who's going to get the Inflation Reduction Act, clean energy money, how are we going to account for it afterwards and tell the American people that their democracy worked and produced the kinds of jobs, the kinds of energy transformation that they were seeking? That's why this is important, to make it a success, but also to help citizens understand whether things have accomplished what they really set out uh, to accomplish in terms of making, making things better. So in the report, you have a pretty impressive section kind of comparing and contrasting current advantages between the United States and China, right? It's it's hard to talk about innovation without bringing in China. How much do you think that the current economic competition between the two countries should be guiding the priorities in terms of innovation? Yeah, this is really tricky because the U.S. has supported this rules-based system and we think competition is good, right? And if somebody is competing honestly and fairly on a level playing field and they're doing better, more power to them. And we don't want to be, you know, being, we don't want to be protectionist to shut that off. We've, we've bought into the idea that, that that's all good. The problem with China and Russia is that they weaponize the international trading system and they weaponize the open internet. So Russia doing ransomware attacks, China stealing IP online through hacks, um, but also forced China, in the case of China, uh, forced sales of companies and technology transfer, uh, closed domestic system and so on. So I think it's really important for understanding the context of this to understand that the US in responding to that is not creating this problem of undermining the system. We're trying to enforce the system. And the U.S. has long supported updating WTO rules in response to what China's doing. And the Trump administration really thought about a anti-dumping case against China and decided it couldn't be under the current WTO rules. But there's a need to respond. And so the U.S. is responding. But I think what's important to understand is that it's responding in conjunction with other countries. And we think in our report, we we argue that it's really important that the U.S. be much more forward-leaning in terms of working with other democracies to do this. And even if it takes a little longer and it's a little more complicated, that what we have to do is work with other democracies to make it clear that 
we are not undermining the rules-based system, whereas we're trying to defend the rules-based system against its weaponization. And the good news is, you talk about these charts, the good news is the U.S. is still ahead in many of the cutting-edge technologies. And uh, where we're not ahead, we still are very much in the game. And so the time is is right. And what you see is uh, the administration Congress responding very quickly in the last two years to put in place these huge subsidy programs. And when you look at the national security strategy that the National Security Council put out, technology is on every page. You know, technology is key to our national security, but it's also key to our economic competitiveness strategy. And so you saw Brian Deese, who just stepped down as the national head of the National Economic Council, also talking about the importance of industrial policy. Speaking of rules, Let's talk about regulation. Innovation is usually put at odds with regulation, right? We've heard so many times that if you regulate, uh, you're just going to stifle innovation, that you know there's a philosophy of go fast and break things. We are seeing some, I think, growing consensus that some sort of regulation is needed. What do you think is the right balance here? And do you think anyone is getting close to getting it right? That's a great, great question. I love the way you frame it. Um, absolutely. If you look back at other industries, I think we have this tech utopianism and this tech exceptionalism where um, we, we, I think partially because the internet grew up at this time of laissez-faire uh, globalization, um, we somehow think that tech and basic rules are in contrast with each other, in conflict with each other. But if we look at other industries in the past, we see that sometimes setting some sensible guardrails can lead to innovation. So, you know, the auto industry didn't embrace seatbelts or airbags or fuel efficiency. But once rules were put in place, they innovated to make them work well and integrated them and turned them into selling points for their cars. So really some sensible guardrails, if they're clearly articulated, if they're First Amendment friendly, uh, can help with innovation, can help set baselines for innovation. They don't have to be in contrast, but not all regulations are, are going to be like that. You know, and they have to, again, I think we really have to make sure that our government officials are really trained in technology and are using technology and that there's a real dialogue with industry. And that's a very complicated thing. I was at the Federal Communications Commission. So I've been in a regulatory agency. And often what happens is there's this real regulatory capture where the industry, where people, you know, there's a revolving door between industry and, and regulators, where regulators are going to get employed in the companies they're regulating, or they're reliant on the industry for the information they need to do the regulations. And so I think we need to be you know, we need to be cognizant of that, but the alternative isn't no regulation. And I think there was a cynicism about regulation that it was hidebound, people didn't understand, it was corrupt. Um, and those are just challenges that have to be met. We can't throw our hands up and say there aren't going to be any rules at all. And I, I think that's what people are coming to. And if you even even look at what the people in the financial industry, the banking industry have been saying in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank, they've been comparing, I heard the former head of Goldman Sachs comparing the banking industry to the airline industry, which is so heavily regulated. He said, why should the consumer 
um, I'm paraphrasing, why should the consumer have to do all this research on the safety of his bank? We don't ask passengers to do that when they get on an airplane. And that's an implicit argument for a real safety check by by regulators. I, I love that. And something that I think keeps coming up, you mentioned the idea of a multi-stakeholder solution, right? So let's talk about what the solution to this part looks like. I think the report talks about a digital policy lab. How do you envision this? How is it addressing these challenges that you've outlined before? Who would be involved? Yeah, thanks for asking. So really what we're anticipating is we need to involve industry, we need to involve labor, we need to involve civil society in these tech challenges and opportunities. And there needs to be a systematic way to do that. And so what we anticipate is almost like a helper agency that would help uh, everybody from OMB to the Federal Trade Commission to the Department of Transportation think about these technologies, build their capacity in them, think about how to, you know, what has worked in the past, what is working in, uh, in other countries, sharing with other countries, and being much more nimble and having much more input. And obviously, this would be a fluid thing. And so there are already efforts that have been made over the past number of years to bring technologists into delivery of government services. And uh, this is the next step. We're not just talking about the delivery of of government services. Uh, We're talking about how policies are made and how importantly, how these tens of billions of dollars in subsidies are meted out. Um, How are we going to decide? I mean, I've heard that all kinds of industries are now getting making um, pleas for the chips money from, you know, nonprofit groups that do advocacy to pharma companies are all saying, well, we use semiconductor chips. Like, how are we going to decide who gets some of these government monies and how are we going to, how are we going to learn from the past and how are we going to say later uh, that it worked? We really need a bunch of people really thinking this through and really solving how we do this in a way that fosters innovation. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Moving on to other things that we need to get right, uh, let's talk about supply chains. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there seems to be a tension between some of the tendencies towards like buy American and on the other hand, French shoring. So maybe you could describe what these policies are trying to address and where, if at all, you see any convergences between them or or what are the divergencies between them? Yeah, this is a, a great issue really at the fore right now um, because the Inflation Reduction Act has provisions in it 
to provide subsidies only when it's a U.S. product or it's a country, it's from a country that we have a free trade agreement with. And we don't have a free trade agreement with some of our closest allies in Europe. So uh, Europe is frustrated by this and um, they can imagine losing companies who will come here to produce things because on the one hand, energy prices have gone up in Europe because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Plus now there are going to be these subsidies coming from the US. And for the Europeans, this is really almost feels like them paying a price for being on the front line of this war. Also, Europe, a key thing about the European Union that a lot of Americans don't understand is that one of the ways they came together was by taming their national subsidy regimes so that they wouldn't be competing against each other. And now they see their close ally maybe doing exactly what they feel like is so fundamental to an alliance, which is not competing on subsidies. So that's why it's so potent for the Europeans. But it's an important issue at any rate. We shouldn't be competing against other allies that we trust um, for supply chain issues. We should be working together with them to ensure that we all have access to the key supply chains for these this new digital era, whether it's semiconductors, which are now as important as oil as an input, we need them for everything, to uh, critical minerals, which are important not only for the semiconductor industry, but for also for the clean energy industry. We really need to assure access. These are really complicated for totally different reasons. And we need to work with others. And we need to work with folks in the global south as well, which is where a lot of these uh, rare earth minerals are. And we need to do so with our with our allies. Um, and what happens is if we have subsidies that are um, nationally focused, we can wind up in a situation where we're all worse off instead of better off. So what we looked at was the analogy of the um, International Energy Agency, which was created in response to OPEC and the oil embargo and oil producers, a uh, number of democracies, I think they were all members of the OECD at the time, came together to form the International Energy Agency to coordinate uh, when they were going to release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, uh, when they they shared data about supply, about uh, forecasts, about future use. And those are exactly the kinds of things that we hear folks, uh, users of semiconductors and also semiconductor manufacturers or folks dealing with um, rare earth saying that is the kind of activity that needs to be happening. And right now we have sort of this floating crap game of alliances that are regional as opposed to a concerted effort to really gather data, share data, make long-term commitments, and make sure that we are um, alerted to supply disruptions and that we have plans to respond. So uh, this is why we call for a new multilateral organization, multi-stakeholder organization that would be equivalent to the International Energy Agency or the Financial Action Task Force that comes in to plug holes in the international architecture. So who would you see joining that body? Do you have have you heard, have you seen an appetite for a new body like this one from other countries? So there is the beginnings of one on critical minerals that the U.S. has stood up. That's a multilateral organization. And there have been a lot of calls for a democracies only club, uh, whether it's this the T10 or the 
you know, some people have said 20. And I think this is the key question that you've asked, which is who's in and who's out. It seems that certainly democracies, the democracies need to be in, um, but that there needs to be a way to coordinate with folks outside of democracies who are allies in this process. And um, it can't be just a closed club of the democracies. We have to find ways. I mean, certainly in in the rare earth minerals, um, we can't produce them all in the developed world. So how do we build these alliances? How do, how does this, how does an organization really ensure that we have, that we have close relationships with, and that this organization is bringing into the fold and helping countries understand that there will be a long-term commitment if they raise standards to the levels that democracies want in terms of mining, um, that there'll be a long-term commitment to working with them and to assuring that they have uh, a per- customers and a revenue base and really pulling folks away from involvement that they've had with uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which has turned out to be, um, you know, a double-edged sword. Um, so a lot of the efforts that are happening through development aid and other efforts that that pertain to this have to be brought under this umbrella of working working globally with democracies and potential allies that have a lot to a lot at stake in this in this issue but there is an appetite it's not coming together as quickly as i think it needs to to make the case that you know if you want to play fairly and uh, you want to be transparent and um, you want to make a, a commitment to open uh, supply chains that we want to work with you do you worry at all that we could end up in a situation where we end up equating kind of nationality or country of origin to trustworthiness during this process? That's a great question. Um, And that's something that in the digital field, we really think about a lot and worry about a lot. And so for instance, when it comes to something like internet freedom, we're very careful to make sure that even if a country, let's say Russia, Um, is deserving of sanctions that we don't cut off citizens of that country uh, from access to the internet because we want to assure that they have access to information, access to the ability to do business. And I think that's one of the things we need to think about in the, in, if we think about it in data as well, too often there's data localization based on country as opposed to based on who's going to really safeguard my data. And I think you're right that in the supply chain uh, context, there may be uh, companies that uh, differ from their country, the country that they're operating in, in terms of assuring rights, in terms of trustworthiness. And it's that level of granularity that something like this would need to, would need to address is what does it, what, what constitutes trustworthiness? And it's not just that you're located in a democracy necessarily. There can be, you know, there can be other qualities and how is it enforceable? How is it accountable? These are the key elements. That leads us perfectly into my next question. I, I want to move us to talk about the the final tension that you've articulated, talking about digital democracy versus digital authoritarianism. I think there's a lot to unpack there, uh, but maybe we can start by setting the scene 
Can you walk us through what you see as the threats to democracy in cyberspace? Yeah, well, first, let me take a step back and say there are some who say that in this new world of geopolitics of tech, that the U.S. can no longer stand for Internet freedom. We can no longer stand for a global Internet, that we should just realize that the Internet is fragmenting and um, we should just give into it and we should just form a club of those who care about uh, the open Internet and allow the others to disconnect. And what that sacrifices as I was saying before, is it sacrifices the people who live under repressive regimes. And we don't want to cut those people off. And the U.S. has really rejected that approach. There were calls to cut off Russia completely. The Ukrainian digital minister said that they should be delisted um, by ICANN. The U.S. did not support that. We have an exemption from our sanctions for Iran, uh, for Russia, when it comes to these non-dual use technologies and access to the internet. And so um, we've really rejected that approach. Uh, the U.S. still, you know, we believe in in uh, global human rights and in to the extent that they can be realized uh, on the internet uh, because you get access to information, we, we want to support that. And in fact, I chair the board of Radio Free Europe and the Open Technology Fund, which are government funded. And the way a lot of people in Russia access reliable news and information is by using VPNs, uh, often supplied by, you know, American technology to get access to YouTube, an American company that's still available in Russia, and they get access to Radio Free Europe. Um, so I think that's a really important value that the U.S. has stood behind and, and needs to continue to stand behind. And the threat, of course, is that China, Russia, and others, Iran, weaponize the internet, both in terms of propaganda campaigns and in terms of uh, cyber hacking, ransomware, and also um, that they try to weaponize the uh, standard setting system in order to impose uh, top-down management of the internet so that each country would control the internet in their within their geographic area, and so that citizens of their country would not be able to get access to information coming from the outside, and that they would be surveilled by their very technology and access. And we see this increasingly the case in China, and Russia has even done a better job of imposing a firewall in its country than we expected. Um, it's really, it's really dangerous uh, to see that happen. And then China has also been promoting and Russia have been promoting this model globally and have China has been selling all kinds of surveillance and control technology to third party countries. So um, the US has, you know, for quite a while now, been opposed to this, but we need to be much more strategic about how we promote a broad concept of, of internet freedom. And the US led in the negotiation of something called the Declaration for the Future of the Internet that embraces this broader concept and over 60 countries have signed on and, and now we really need to, to promote it, uh, to get others on board, to promote its concepts in different fora. And we also are chairing the Freedom Online Coalition now, which is another opportunity. Now, one could also argue that democracies have misused technologies and they have weaponized 
you know, in, in similar ways, not to make a false equation, but there are incidents of uh, spying on journalists, on activists, or surveilling their citizens. So how do we give whatever solution comes next enough teeth to kind of create accountability for all? How, how do you envision that? <laughs> That's a $10,000 question. None of these are easy, which is why we, you know, supported the idea of, of institutional sort of process oriented changes, because I'm not going to come up with the answer. These are things that have to be negotiated out. But one of the things that we're leading on, I'm co-chairing a group out of the German Marshall Fund that's co-chaired by Julie Brill, um, the uh, chief privacy officer for Microsoft and former Federal Trade Commission commissioner to, on global uh, the te- global task force on trusted data flows. And this is exactly the kind of thing we're looking at is how how can we be sure that uh, how can countries feel assured that when their citizens data crosses borders, for example, that they'll have due process when it comes to things like compelling access to their data or law enforcement ability to get access to data in other countries? How do we how can we be sure that there's transparency, that there's due process, rule of law? you know, baseline um, privacy protections um, so that countries don't start fragmenting data flows um, and the internet and trade flows in order to protect rights or protect national interests. And so one of the things we're building on is there was this process, the OECD, for countries to come to some basic agreements about when it's okay for um, national security agencies or what procedures are okay uh, for assuring due process when national security agencies are compelling access to data. But it's those kinds of processes where really democracies and, and their allies working together to figure out what are some baseline principles and then what are some mechanisms for continuing to raise standards and what kinds of benefits do you get from that? What kinds of access do you get from raising your standards? What kinds of accountability and enforcement is there if you're not following through on the agreement? And what led to this report being written was this feeling that this kind of activity that we do in other industries that we do, you know, maybe in the finance industry where we or anti-money laundering or there's other areas that we've sort of lost our knack for creating these kinds of procedures to get to some kind of conclusion and high standards in this tech area, because we've been so allergic to thinking about any kinds of rules. And we thought any kind of rules had to be top down. They have to be, they would kill innovation that we haven't looked in our own toolbox to figure out how could we do this, foster innovation, but have some some basic rules that protect rights and protect the overall system. In the recent national cybersecurity strategy, I think Pillar 5, which discusses the need for international partnerships, discusses how the U.S. government is looking for ways to promote their values by, and I'm quoting here, by demonstrating to economies and societies the value of openness. Do you think that your proposals align with that? How, how do you interpret uh, the US government saying that that's what they're trying to do? I hope that our proposals align with that. That's very much our goal. And I think I think that's what we what we wanted. What we are urging is that 
the U.S. and Europe demonstrate that, that if we say friendshoring and we say openness, but we don't put as much muscle behind ensuring that that happens as we do making sure that our companies get our subsidies, then we'll have lost a big opportunity. And we may we may have undermined the very openness that is our strength. Kind of in that same line, do you think there is an alignment between this proposal and the current approach by the Biden administration? Do you think more needs to be done? And if so, what would you recommend? Yes, I think that that's a great way of saying it. I do think it's really aligned. And what we're saying is great job. Um, and not just to the Biden administration, but, you know, this was bi- some of these subsidy programs are bipartisan. Um, and it's certainly Congress, you know, enacted all these subsidies and has supported the export controls. We haven't talked about those, but they're really important export controls that have been imposed on technology to both Russia and China. Huge change in the U.S. approach. Uh, so we say good job, uh, great job, amazing job on the last two years, but don't risk undermining that success by not demonstrating to the world what you say in your national security strategy and in speeches that this is not just U.S. alone uh, or even U.S. and Europe alone, that this is about uh, upholding the rules-based system, strengthening it, making it more agile, making it more innovation-friendly. And the way to do that is by creating some procedures and processes and institutions that would allow us to set forth, you know, this is what you need to do to join the club. This is what you need to do to do friendshoring and actually making it a reality. We have to make friendshoring a reality. We have to demonstrate that if you're open, you get to join. So Karen, before we conclude, I I wanted to give you the opportunity if there's anything else that we hadn't discussed that you would like to add, uh, something to leave our audience with. The main thing that we just wanted to say is As we move from this system of laissez-faire globalization to industrial policy, which is an enormous change for the U.S., first of all, it's underappreciated. Most Americans have no idea that these tens of billions of dollars of subsidies have just been passed or these really impactful uh, export controls have been imposed on China um, where they were uh, threatening national security that these are incredibly important. Americans should be aware of them, but we also need to finish the job. We need to make sure that uh, we're doing this in a way that isn't top down and isn't go it alone, but is pro-innovation and pro-ally. And we need to demonstrate that we're pro-open and pro-ally in very concrete ways. So we need to do that to finish the job. And uh, we've put on the table some ways to think about about doing that. And um, we're working with a number of different stakeholders to try to bring those to fruition. And part of that is building on something like the Declaration for the Future of the Internet that's already in place or the Freedom Online Coalition that the U.S. is chairing. So thank you for these these great questions. It's a a conversation that um, began before we wrote the report, but we were hoping to put some real solid proposals Uh, on the table to help concretize it. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter 
at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patiahawa, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.